morning, everyone. A delight to see you. It's so good to be with you this morning. As you settle yourselves into position, I want to start off actually asking you to quickly re-engage. I'm a professor. Many of you know this. Many of you know this. McKinsey knows this all too well. One of my star students over here. This will be on the test. So um, I'm all about the think tank, getting us thinking together. So I want you just to quickly, with someone around you or in triads or triumvirates or whatever, groups of three or four, what, if you were to poll folks, let's say you go down to Third Street Promenade, down in Santa Monica, and you just sit there for two hours and you have, you know, a question. What is most important? What is most important? And then connected to that, perhaps, who are the important ones? Who are the ones in our society, our culture, whatever subcultures are going to be represented in your survey, who are the people that matter, that really matter, the important ones, the best ones, those of significance? So what really matters? Perhaps that's the question you could ask one another real quickly. Not what do you think, because we all know you're going to say one word, right? Jesus. You're the only Sunday school kid here, Bill? The answer is always Jesus. No, uh, yes, that's true, but y'all might have a different perspective. What I want to ask is to kind of become anthropologists and think about the cultures, the circles you run in, the teams you're on, and what do you think folks would say? What is most important? All right, so discuss for a couple minutes. Go, or for like literally 30 seconds. Go. 30 seconds. What do you think? All right, 15 seconds, 15 seconds. Ten, nine, eight, six, five, four, three, two, one. Okay, now I want to hear from you. Or you could say what you heard. You could share what you heard from someone else, what they thought folks would say. What is most important? Let's hear if you just kind of belt them out. Family, okay? Family, probably a big one. Family. And what do, we, what do you mean by family? What do you think people mean by family? It can mean a lot of things, right? Okay, cool. What else? What's most important, people? Yes, preacher. All right. Loving, loving your neighbor. Okay, beautiful. Thanks so much. Yes. Okay, relationship. All right, relationships. Okay, good. What about just folks, maybe folks that aren't in the faith, just running around in our culture? What kind, okay, I heard status. Money's kind of important, right? You win or lose elections oftentimes if the, if the economy tanks by like 25%. It's probably going to be a full new slate of people, right? This is kind of how we think as a people. What else? I heard... Fame, fame. Woo, a lot to be said there. What? Grace? Oh, grades, as in grades that you get A, B, C, D. Yes. Yes? You don't eat at places that get a C, and you don't want to get C's in college, right? Yeah, what else? Any other thoughts? What matters? Significance. 
How, how many likes did you get? Education. Education. Oh, yes. If you ask, I've worked at a, at a number of um, organizations that have worked with uh, underprivileged communities and, and kids. And if you ask what is the, the goal, oftentimes getting to college, getting to education is important. And it is important. But this is certainly something that we value highly. Okay, so we're talking about my favorite letter, maybe tied with Philippians and the Gospel of Mark, in the New Testament. I don't have many opinions about a lot of the books of the Bible. Nehemiah, I didn't have a lot to contribute there. I just thought they're building a wall, there's God stuff, good things are happening. But 1 Corinthians, to me, this series, when I heard we were teaching on it, I like immediately sent out like an eight-paragraph email to the teaching team, and like, here are some of my thoughts and some things I want us to really be careful of. We should be reading this, this, and this. So I'm really excited about this particular book or letter, and I want to just show a couple images. So I have some slides. Oh, Brian, if you don't mind, we'll, we'll just go to the first one. Let's take a look. Where is Corinth? Let's see. There. There is Corinth. If I have my laser pointer, which I do in my lectures, I like to make a joke. I say, this is Asia Minor, Western Turkey to the, to, over here. This is um, the Peloponnesus down, see where the arrow's pointing, that big island? And then I yell out, this is Sparta! <laughs> see, it's funny even without the laser pointer. Okay, so Sparta's down there on the Peloponnesus. And then that arrow is pointing to this narrow isthmus Todd introduced to us two weeks ago. Go ahead, next slide. There's the narrow isthmus. And you can see today there's a canal built there that connects the Saronic Coast with a Gulf with the Corinthian Gulf. In the ancient Corinth, the Corinth to which Paul writes, there was actually, there was no uh, canal, but there were tracks, like train tracks. You could offload your stuff if you're a merchant, put them on these giant carts, and folks would push them across. You'd have slaves push them across the uh, railroad track load them onto other boats in the Corinthian Gulf and save yourself lots and lots and lots of sesterce, okay? Lots of money saved. So what does this mean for Corinth? It means, as Todd already introduced a bit, it is a place that is flush with cash. It is a place that is going to be encountering new ideas, fresh ideas. If it's hip, if it's cool, it's happening in Corinth. This was not, like Paul writes to the Galatians, this is like backwater hillbillies, the Galatians, right? This is a very different kind of people. Here in Corinth, it's cool, it's fashionable, if it's important, if it's powerful, if it's happening in the empire, you're going to see it in Corinth. Okay, next slide shows you a little artistic uh, rendition of the actual city itself. One neat, fun fact that has nothing to do with my sermon, but Corinth was modeled on Naples. So if any of you have ever been to Pompeii or Herculaneum down in Naples in Italy, they modeled this city uh, when it was built as a Roman colony in 44 BC. They modeled it, modeled it after the Bay of Naples. Here's why I think that's so cool. If you don't have the ability to go and see Naples or go see Corinth, Guess what else was modeled after the Bay of Naples? The Getty Villa in Malibu. So for $16 of parking, you can go and spend a day in Corinth. Just kind of pretend like you're an elite house in Corinth. That's for free. So this is a city that if there was hip orators, the rock stars of the ancient world, they were coming through Corinth. 
If there was important education and philosophies, you're going to have them bubbling up in Corinth. If you want to see the power of the empire manifest, you're going to see the upper stratum, ancient world, very tiny middle class, a massive subsistence level, what we would categorize as a poverty class, and a tiny sliver of the upper stratum aristocracy, those with the most. Literally, the terms to describe these groups were called the first ones, or the best ones, the honestiores, the better ones, the important ones. And then to describe the understratum was this term humiliores, humiliores, right? Literally the humbled ones or the lower ones. This was built into Roman thought. I want to show you um, a slide. Next slide. This is the question I had us ask. How would we fill this in? By nature, this is the question, you can hit one more. By nature, we yearn and hunger for blank. If we were filling that in in our world today, in our historical moment and location, by nature we yearn and hunger for blank. And once we've glimpsed, as it were, some part of its radiance, there is nothing we are not prepared to bear and suffer in order to secure it. What is that engine that drives and runs us? We may not be able to articulate it with a word. People may not have it. Dear diary, today I pursued my ultimate goal. But if you all have it, you're doing it. We all do in our world, our culture. The prevailing winds. That was a great metaphor at the beach service this morning because there were strong winds. The prevailing winds of culture are blowing in certain directions telling us this is the thing. Mm, If you could just taste of it, you want it. What were those things What are those things driving us? In the ancient world, you can click one more. This is actually a quote by Marcus Tullius Cicero. His name means chickpea. Funny nickname. Cicero, or Cicero, you may may, uh, recognize him. He shares with us what drove the Roman Empire. By the way, the world in which the New Testament was written. The world that thrived and operated in Roman Corinth. What drove them? Honor. Honor. This cultural capital, this thing that it was like, remember coolness in junior high school? You remember that? Ooh, gosh, junior high. Just mention I get shivers. Coolness. You knew who was cool. You knew who wasn't cool. And it really, really mattered. And you really wanted to be cool. And if you were me, you really failed at being cool in junior high school. Well, imagine a world run on coolness where it really, really mattered and a select few had it. This is the world of Roman Corinth. And so how do you get honor? What does honor look like? I just want to show you images of living the dream. Okay, so here's next slide. These are, oh, this is just how important glory was. Next slide. Oh my gosh, here's a good one. So Pliny the Younger, he writes advice to a buddy of his that is about to become a governor in the Iberian Peninsula in Spain. And he writes in this great letter, and uh, it just shows you how morality and status were married together in the ancient context. Check this out. You have done splendidly, he tells his buddy, in commending your administration of justice. So he's saying you're a very just leader. I love your justice. This you have shown particularly in maintaining consideration for the best men, okay, the most good people in Latin, 
but in doing so, you've won the respect of the lower classes while holding the affection of the superiors. So he just talks in, these, in this language. I cannot help but sounding as if I was offering you advice that you might maintain the distinctions between ranks and degrees of dignity. Nothing could be more unequal than the equality which results when those distinctions are confused or broken down. Now to us, in our particular post-enlightenment, sort of Judeo-Christian-ish, democratic world, this is horrific. This is like, are you kidding me? He's literally defining injustice as breaking down barriers in status. If you mess with those, if you dine with those who are the understratum, if you consider justice to be applied equally, you're creating chaos. This is how the Roman world operated and was seen. And how do you get that honor? How do you get to the upper stratum? Next slide, a few small images. Here's a dude, a Roman noble, showing off his lineage. So being well-born, that is, who were your parents, your grandparents, your great-grandparents, and great-great-grandparents? This was critically important. We don't care about this today. I was not introduced. Bill's like, you're going to be excited to hear James speaking today. You know, his dad is Sam, and his grandfather's Bill. You're like, I don't care. I don't care. What has he done? What does he have to say? We care much more about an individual, not family line. Quite the opposite in the ancient world. A good example, next piece. Here's a Roman coin. This is how uh, imperial honor was advertised. There was no mass communication. Closest thing to it was coins. So numismatic um, advertising. And so here's a picture. On the right, you'll see the divine Julius, written there in Latin. Julius Caesar, and on the, the left, this would be the flip side of the coin, was Caesar Augustus calling himself the Divi Filius, the son of God. I am Augustus, Caesar Augustus, the son of God or the son of the divine, right? So, so he's advertising, I am hooked up with divine adoptive father. Next slide. When we talk about how do you get on or what, is, what does it take, what does it look like, this is what it looks like, okay? These are not just one-off, weird, imperial statues. These are very public communications of who the most important people are and what they did. So on the left, you'll see Claudius defeating Britain. This is a political picture. So there's Claudius virile, demonstrating virtus. Literally, we get our word virtue, it literally means manliness. And he's defeating an effeminate, exposed, defeated Britain. Could you imagine if they unveiled like Obama's presidential library and the, the picture that came out, the statue was him standing over like an ISIS child or something like that? And what would we do as a country? We'd be freaked out. Everyone's like, what, what do I say? What do I say? I don't know. I'd be freaked out. I'd be like, take that statue down. That's ridiculous. That's not how we think about virtue. But this is exactly how they're advertising their political virtue. The good ones, the best ones. And on the, on the left, there's, um, on the right, there's uh, Nero standing over defeated Armenia. Next slide. Even more disturbing. Here is on the right, Hadrian standing over a child, foot on the back of a child, advertising his regime's um, putting down of a Jewish revolt. So that's a, most likely a Jewish child underfoot. And he's advertising Roman power, Roman virtus, Roman honor. This is what matters most. And on the left is a, a coin of a, a defeated 
Jewish community. So what I wanted to show you, I just wanted to give you some flavor. I know it's a bit of history, more than you were hoping to get on Sunday morning, but that's what happens when you have me preach to you about 1 Corinthians. What I want you to see is when we talk about who really matters and what really matters in Roman Corinth, these are the heroes in the exempla you strive for. It is superiority, it is dominance, it is those who should be leading, who should be considered more worthy and more important than those of the forgettable understratum of society. This is the world in which Roman honor was pulsating, and then Paul writes something absolutely absurd to this world. Next, next slide. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us being saved, it is the power of God. It is the power of God. The message of the cross is complete foolishness. Next slide is one of my favorite pictures, and I've shown this to our church before. It's an inscription, it's a graffiti from maybe the second, maybe early third century, uh, etched on the Palatine Hill in Rome. And it is one individual making fun of another. Whoever was the graffiti artist here is making fun of a buddy of his named Alexamenos. And it says in misspelled Greek, actually, it's, it's second person plural for the verb, it should be a third person singular, but I also teach Greek, so I'm persnickety about these things. It says, Alexamenos worships his God. Alexamenos worships his God. The idea of a cross, which we have seen in our popular culture or in our life as, right, the thing you, you can ward off vampires with, or that beautiful symbol that just uh, adorns these medieval cathedrals that we marvel at, or Renaissance art, or beautiful jewelry that we look at and love, or for us, those, those who follow Jesus, the cross is this gorgeous symbol of forgiveness, that weight, the shackles of our shame and our sin, lifted off and freed. That's what the cross means to us. You show a cross to Roman Corinth, they've seen crosses before. There are most likely crosses right outside the city, right as Paul writes this letter. If we were in Roman Corinth right now, you can cruise on down to the village afterwards, get a bite to eat. And you know where we have our flags uh, on PV Drive? You go by that nice patriotic little turn. You'd probably have some crosses there. Folks up there dying, takes two, three, sometimes a, a three days, sometimes a week to die. Right? It was something they knew about. And a cross was not something good where a good person would ever die. A cross was reserved in the Romans' A legal and um, literary and cultural imagination. It was reserved for slaves or those who were the scum of society. There's uh, one more picture you can advance. And then, and then I want to show you, this is actually the first image of Jesus on a cross ever. The first ever image, a Christian image that survives of Jesus on a cross. And it's, you'll notice he's naked on it, right? Completely naked. You would be stripped naked, exposed on a cross. Next line, this is Cicero. He has another quote. He says this, to consign a Roman citizen. By the way, Roman citizen equals those who matter. Those who matter, who are doing what matters. 
To consign a Roman citizen to chains is a wicked deed. To flog him a crime. To kill him is practically parricide, killing a family member. But what can I say about crucifying him? No word is sufficient to describe such a vile act. I want you to feel, and Todd's next week going to bring us even deeper, because Paul doesn't let up on this. Paul doesn't shy away from the cross. He's not embarrassed of this symbol, which as you can see in here, the enemy wrote a a donkey's head, a shameful animal with uh, a naked, suffering Messiah, saying, how could you possibly worship a deity? By the way, a foreign deity, not Roman deity, who dies and dies on a cross. You're crazy. Paul of Tarsus and anyone that would listen to him, you're crazy. But Paul says, if this is true, you have to rethink everything. If it's actually true, next slide. Starting in verse 19. It is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? This is technical language referring to that uppercut, that fraternity of aristocratic well-educated. Where are they? Where is the teacher? Where is the philosopher or the debater? We might think of the pundit of this age. Has not God made foolishness out of the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, through, um, since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know Him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand a sign. Paul knew that as a Jew himself, a very accomplished Second Temple Pharisee. And the Greeks, they look for wisdom, that is a particular kind of rhetorical uh, flourish mixed with some philosophical and culturally valuable things to say. But we, what do we preach? Here's what we preach. It's ugly. It's embarrassing. It's shameful. It's the thing you sweep under the carpet. You say, hey, do you want a good marriage? Come follow Jesus. You don't say, hey, do you want to see the epicenter of brokenness and darkness and shame in the world? Come see Jesus, right? That's what we preach. We preach Christ and we preach Him crucified. This is a stumbling block to Jews. It's foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God, the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. Isn't that beautiful? The weakness of God is stronger than human strength. If this is true, we have to rethink everything. If this is real, we have to rethink everything. Like if you've ever seen a great movie like an M. Night Shyamalan movie, the early ones, with twist endings, do you remember The Sixth Sense? If you've never seen it, I'm about to ruin it for you. How many of y'all seen The Sixth Sense? Just show me. Good, there you go. The rest of you, don't watch it after I say this. When you realize at the end that Bruce Willis's character was a ghost the whole time, what's the first thing you want to do? Go back and watch it again. I have got to watch it again now that I know that my mind is blown. I need to rewatch it because it means something completely different now. I have to rethink this whole entire movie. I have to rewatch it again. Paul is bringing to Roman Corinth a line that says this What if, he's not saying what if, but what if the God of all the universe, not your pantheon of uh, disputing deities, I'm talking about the God of all the universe. What if that God broke into time and history and dwelt with us 
and where that God went and what that God prioritized, you could find it on a Roman cross, dying naked. What happens to everything? For Paul of Tarsus, a man running in one direction quickly in life, moving up in the world where it mattered in the systems of the world, he saw the cross, encountered the resurrected Jesus, and said, I have to rethink everything. And that's the beauty of this letter that we're in. Paul is breaking it forth, saying, in light of this cross, you have to rethink everything. Do you really mean this? I mean, I'm asking that question right now. Does God really mean this? Like seriously, not just a feel-goody church moment, go get some lunch afterwards, take a nap and forget it. Like, does God really mean that he chooses the foolish things, those things which are not? Next slide. That's a picture of Jesus. Next slide. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. So this is interesting. He's talking to the masses here. There's a couple probably representatives from that upper tier of the strata, but not many. He says, think of who you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. Eugenes, noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things which are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. If this is true, like God, do you really, really mean this? Because if you really mean this, I have to rethink everything and I have to rethink every one. I... I am passing by in my life communities, individuals, folks in particular circumstances. I'm passing by with, at best, pity. Oh, I pity them. Oh, I pity them. Oh, those poor souls. I pity them. And at worst, a complete indifference or ignorance, right? I just don't even know. I don't notice. When you ask me, who are the best ones? What does it look like to really make it? I envision it's going to involve, like, you'll have a TED Talk, probably. You might have a book. You'll have some degrees. You'll certainly have a particular lifestyle. And these things run through my mind, and I can forget completely about entire swaths of society on this earth today. If God were to walk into our world right now and somehow talk to us about where he's going to be later on today, and where he's, look at, show us his day planner. What communities, if he's going to kind of do some specific visits, where is he going to be? I promise you, if this is true, if this is true, he's going to be in places and with people that we have completely forgotten about. Like, there are a few, um, I'm speaking, uh, I'll kind of land this plane, talking personally for a minute. I haven't spoken to y'all from up here in a preaching setup since before Christmas, so... Um, I won't burden you with, with where I'm at every single week, but you're going to get it once in a while. Uh, for, for Bray and I, y'all know, most of you know, we, you know we've been foster parents, and, and we're now about a year, we're a year into it of being foster parents. And the most inspiring moments, if you want to find us at our absolute best, babysit for us for free. No. Um, <laughs> when we go to events with our 
our foster care agency. When we have these events where they bring together all the, all the foster parents and kids, we had this one week at Knott's Berry Farm. And you go to Knott's Berry Farm and all of Crest, which is the agency that we work with, they had kids from Orange County, San Diego, Riverside County, San Bernardino, Los Angeles County, we're representing LA. And all these kids are there. And you look around this beautiful park, and we started in this like meal area, everyone was there together. You see kids, they got patches on their eyes and helmets, and every kid's in glasses running around. You'll notice scars, you'll see speech impediments. You'll see kids acting in ways that little kids don't act because of what they've been through and who they are. And you look around, and, and I can honestly say, because of the vantage point God has given us, I look around and I go, this is where the potential is. This is the place that is just ready to burst forth with the wisdom of God, with the power of God, with the beauty of God. And now, this is one thing I'm talking about. Y'all have amazing ministries you're a part of. So this is, I'm just speaking out of my place. But I want to say, it's also the place where we got 30,000 kids in care in L.A. County, and you'll hear zero communication about it in any political discourse. CNN or Fox News, they're not going to really talk much about it. It's not something we really care about, right? We care about it. But our culture, it's just not as important. It's easy to forget or to just pity or to go, that's a shame. Lord Jesus, come. And I just want to say as I read this passage, Lord, do you really mean this? Are you serious about this? Because if you are, I have to look differently at this community and these beautiful kids. And now to get really personal with it, with our own two little stinkers, angels, most of the time. You get good news, you get bad news. Every week. Every week is a roller coaster. You have 50 million meetings, you get good news, and you get bad news. And this week, you know, we get a little bad news. Little baby Franco. It's not devastating, it's just some bad news. Stuff you're a little scared about, thinking about, will this child have a full life in, in the way that I would think of a full life? Will this child have everything I want for him? And you get this bad news. And I, I'm preparing this message, and I'm like, God, I'm going on a run. Because that's what I do when I'm like angry and, and upset and confused. I'm like, I'm going on a run. We have this run in our house, by our house. It's a giant cul-de-sac uphill the entire way, and then downhill the rest, the, the, the second half. And Bray and I, we call, like, call it the neighborhood run, but it's also the place you go to, like, I got to cry for, like, the whole run. And I'm running up, and I'm listening to, like, my music, my worship music. Okay, I need some, like, Metallica for a second. Okay, back to worship just to get up the hill. So now I'm angry and worshiping. I don't know what's happening. And I'm praying, and I'm truly praying, and I'm saying, God, do you mean this? Do you honestly mean this? Because if you do, then I praise you and thank you that baby Franco is exactly where you want to show your glory to this world. These kids weren't born with 90 yards to the end zone. Some of us were born 10 yards to the end zone. They weren't born with 90 yards to the end zone. They were born in the parking lot outside the stadium, unable to get in. And yet, could it be that that's exactly where God is doing the most beautiful things ever? So when I, when I ask the question, God, do you really mean this? If so, I have to rethink everything. This is not a message I say one Sunday because it preaches sweetly and we move on. This is a message I have got to repeat to myself again and again and again. And Paul is bringing to Roman Corinth and everyone has to look around and go, does, does God really think this way? 
Because if so, everything changes. Um, two, two small application thoughts. One, to me and to all of us here, this is a mindset realignment, a constant mindset realignment for us. That is, we look at the human population differently than other people will. We're just going to. If you're following Jesus and you're following him to a cross and finding the power of God on that cross, then you're suddenly looking around and going, I see this world differently. I see people differently. I notice people that maybe are written off or forgotten or at best pitied by others. And when I go to Baja Bound, we're not just going as, and that's what I love about the River Church, we don't just go as these, let's save the day, wear an S on our chest, build a house, and feel good about ourselves. We live with these folks. We commune, we learn, we grow. We see people that carry a burden we could not imagine, and we stand in awe and say, God, your glory is being shown here. So, so we think differently. And the second one, this is really practical, but it's just the rhythm of our weeks. We will, I'll tell you your priorities, I'll, you'll see my priorities, by what, where am I burning the extra hours? Where are they going? Where are they invested? If they're invested, those extra hours are invested at the office, which maybe in a certain seasons of life they need to be. And then maybe they don't need to be anymore, but they still are, right? Or if those certain hourly investments are places that are strategic for me, I might need to rethink everything and go, God, where am I intersecting with people that are disposable in the world's eyes? Where am I living in communities for small or longer pieces of time where I'm going, what am I going to do this spring break? I'm not trying to push Baja Bound on everyone, guilting you. Not at all. It's an idea. There's a bunch of different ideas. But where are you intersecting regularly with folks that are just written off? And I'm not saying to pity them or to save them from whatever circumstances you see. I'm talking about to be in awe of what God's doing in their lives. And then the second one's a reflection. This is the last piece, and that is, if this is true, if this is all real, I want you, I want, I want you to rethink yourself. I want you to rewatch the movie of your life. Because if this is true, here's what that means. That means the darkest, most broken, most shameful, most embarrassing, most impossible part of your life, most impossibly bad part, could exactly be where God's glory is going to shine forth in the biggest ways. That means that relationship, and you know which one I'm talking about, that you think is gone, flushed down the toilet, don't revisit that. That might actually be that weak, broken, forgotten place in your life that God says, I'm going to actually do something miraculous and just you watch. You hand it to me and watch my glory because that's what God loves. If you have a tape in your head that has told you, well, you can never do this because you're just dot, dot, dot. If you've been told by people in your life terrible things, maybe well-meaning people that have told you some things that were like putting shackles on you and have impeded either reaching for things God's calling you to, or have just caused you to be safe and settled in your little chamber of lies. I want to encourage you, hear this. Run it through this grid and, and re-examine. Because I would imagine that in the most dark, hurtful, 
painful, confusing, or weak places of your life, it might just be where God's getting ready to do the biggest things. Now, that's an audacious statement. That's a ridiculous statement. That's an absurd statement I've just made. This whole sermon is absurd. This whole series is absurd. This whole thing we call following Jesus is absurd. And it's exactly the mind and heart of God for our world. It's absurd in the world's eyes. It's absurd in our own eyes sometimes. And it's exactly the spot, if this is true, where God's doing the greatest things. So there's a lot to reflect on. We're going to continue deeper in this cruciform vision of life, that is the cross-shaped vision of life. I'm going to pray. We're going to have uh, some time. There'll be some worship, some more opportunities to just maybe process and say, Lord, I need to rethink it in light of you. I want to see the world like you see the world. And then we're going to have some communion. So I'm going to pray right now. Lord, I as we turn into, back into you, we, we, we turn our face. Our face may have been in all different directions this week. And Lord, for the next whatever minutes, we want to face straight at you and ask you, God, how do you see my circumstances? How do you see my kids? How do you see my marriage? How do you see my employees, my employers, my jobs, my neighbors, my society, my politicians, my, my enemies? My brokenness. How do you see it, God? Because I need your vision because my vision is failing me. So we desperately look to you, Lord. How do you see us? How do you see this world? We want to look at the world from a God's eye view. So Lord, more of you, more of your clarity, more absurd moments of clarity with your mind, Lord God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.